1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Cyberwires Research Saturday. I'm Dave Bittner, and this is our weekly conversation with researchers and analysts tracking down threats and vulnerabilities, solving some of the hard problems of protecting ourselves in a rapidly evolving cyberspace. Thanks for joining us.
0: Well, Jack Voltaic got its start back in 2016.
1: That's Lieutenant Colonel Erica Mitchell from the U.S. Army Cyber Institute. Today we're discussing Jack Voltaic. That's their Critical Infrastructure Resiliency Research Project. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business.
0: Uh, my predecessor, uh, Chief Warrant Officer Ford, Judy Escobel, was looking for a research project and started thinking about we have these mutual assistance agreements for uh, energy companies. If there's you know, a major natural disaster, you get linemen from all over the nation coming to help whatever the affected area is and her thought was what if we could do something similar with cyber you know we we have struggles in having the the appropriate number of cyber personnel we have a negative unemployment rate in cyber so what if we could lift and shift personnel when there's a a major disaster and so that's how the cyber mutual assistance workshop in 2016 happened and at that workshop they discovered that there was difficulty in translating things across companies and across sectors. And so the broader research became, how do we help these sectors talk with each other and leverage each other in the event of some type of cyber incident? And so they conducted Jack Voltaic One in New York City in partnership with City. Um, And from Jack Voltaic, one, they tested a terrorist attack with a cyber attack that occurred afterwards, particularly targeting the finance, transportation, and energy sector. And the data that came out of that showed that we weren't really prepared for Opportunistic cyber attacks, and so New York City was able to leverage that research and have since stood up their very own cyber command. Hmm.
1: And then you move on to uh, Jack Voltaic Two. What was uh, what was the program there?
0: So with Jack Voltaic Two, we decided that we were going to take a look at another major metropolitan area. In this case, it was Houston. And with that, we also incorporated Beaumont, Texas, uh, which is where we do a lot of port activity. Um, The Surface Deployment and Distribution Command does, uh, they move stuff out of the port of Beaumont. And so we brought them into the scenario and we were looking at what happens in the event of a hurricane and then a cyber attack kind of preying on, the chaos that surrounds hurricanes. And Mm. and what we learned from that is, one, during a hurricane, all the ships are going to be pushed out of the port. So any cyber attacks that happen after that are basically overcome by events and don't have an effect. And But what we also learned is what we tend to think of as the center of gravity, you know, you you look at energy particularly – isn't going to always be the center of gravity. Um, for Houston, water and wastewater was actually a bigger issue because of the amount of water needed to shut down the chemical plants there. And and so these jack voltaic events kind of pull these threads that no one's gone you know all the way down the rabbit hole on, and we learn new things every time we conduct one. Hmm. Well,
1: today we're going to be focusing on Jack Voltaic 3. Um, before we dig into to what you all did this, this time around, um, I'm sure there's some folks in our audience who are wondering about the name itself, which uh, I'll admit I find a bit delightful. Um, can you give us a little of the backstory? How did it come to be called Jack Voltaic?
0: Well sure. Um so in, in the army and the military in general, we tend to give things these two word names. And so Judy really liked the term voltaic and and kept kind of trying to figure out what would go with that and then hit upon Jack. And, and the bad thing about Jack Voltaic is it, it's often caused people to ask us who Jack Voltaic is <laughs> and expect a man to show up for these discussions. <laughs> but is it's a great a name. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, it, it's, it's, it's certainly um, catchy and easy to remember and I think fitting for the, the type of exercises you're doing here. Well, let's dig into the third iteration. Um, what did you all set out to do this time around?
0: So uh, I'm going to go back just a little bit. Right before we did the third iteration, we were asked to go do a series of workshops uh, across America. We went to six different port cities, and this was Jack Voltaic 2.5. Mm. And what we saw was that these port cities, even though you know they're they're all port cities, every single port city is different. And so that kind of led us in Jack Voltaic three to not just look at port cities, but also make it more of a regional focus. Um, it's kind of trivial, not, not completely trivial, but fairly trivial if you can pivot from one port to another that's within a couple hour drive. Where it becomes difficult is when you have two ports that are in close proximity to each other that are both experiencing problems, and then you've got to start looking further away to pivot to a different port um, if you're trying to do a a forced deployment. And so for JV-3, we were looking at pulling the thread that we couldn't pull with Surface uh, Distribution and Deployment Command or Deployment and Distribution Command um, during JV-2 and seeing whether an attack on civilian critical infrastructure without targeting the DoD specifically could interfere with our force projection mission if we had to send people and equipment out the door. And what we learned during JV-3 is that it absolutely has an impact. And we also saw some more of the information sharing that we've seen during JV-1 and JV-2 in that we had uh, equipment that was moving to the port, but the cities that it was passing through weren't necessarily informed that it was coming there. So when mm. they had these strange cyber issues, they weren't suspecting that it may be part of a, a bigger um, motive that's targeting DOD passing through their city. And, and so what we see is that the information sharing piece is one of the biggest components of Jack Voltaic and the findings every time we do it.
1: You know, looking through the report here that you've published, um, one of the things that struck me, and I think this is just me coming from my own point of view, is, you know, that when you list your scope and objectives, uh, the top of the list was to examine the impact of a cyber event on army force projection. Um and I think um, it's not uh, reflexive for me to think about army force projection within the continental United States. I think, you know, most of the time I'm thinking of, of the army going to other places and and doing things, but um, that's this is part of your mission, and I think for for whatever reason that that has sort of fallen out of the 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 popular uh, imagination of the types of things that you all do, but uh, still an important part of the mission. Yes,
0: absolutely. Um, so a lot of times we assume away any risk in the homeland. We assume Mm. that we're going to have this uncontested homeland and that if I need to move equipment from Fort Hood to Beaumont, nothing is going to stop me. If I need to move equipment from Fort Gordon to Charleston, which coincidentally I did back in 2003, nothing is going to prevent me from being able to do that. And so with cyber, that is no longer a good assumption the way it was 20 years ago or 30 years ago when we didn't have to worry about anyone being able to come over and and start a fight in the homeland. Mm -hmm.
1: Right, right. The the very nature of cyber is such that uh, people can cross those borders virtually and and, uh, affect things from, from a distance.
0: Exactly. And so what we're trying to do, One of our big focuses at at the Army Cyber Institute is preventing strategic surprise. If we can dream it, someone can do it. And and so that is why we're focusing so heavily on uh, preventing that strategic surprise in the homeland and having cyber prevent us from being able to complete our force projection mission.
1: Well, let's go through the scenarios here and, and how you organize things. Um, you know, the the, the varying degrees of, of types of events and impacts that could have on things, both within the military and the uh, the, the cities themselves. Can you share with us how, how did you go about planning this?
0: So we had a team that got together, and we actually researched events that have happened. So, for example, for some of the train injects, there was a a young boy in Europe who, at 14 years old, managed to derail a train um, through hacking. And so we based everything on existing malware um, that could deliver the injects that we had, and on existing events that had already happened. And that way, it kind of prevents people from fighting the scenario. You know, when you come up with something that's completely off the wall, people don't really want to trust in the scenario, and they're mm. they're more uh, likely to say, "Oh, well, that can't really happen." But in this case, we were able to say, look, everything we're saying can and has happened. And that was our main focus was to make it a realistic scenario using real world events.
1: Can you walk us through then how does it play out? I mean, do you start with with low impact things and, and sort of crank up the heat from there?
0: So in this case, absolutely. Uh, we went with a death by a thousand paper cuts type scenario. Um, And that's because what we're looking for is at what threshold are people going to recognize that this may be an actual cyber event? And then for the next step, at what threshold are they going to declare that it's a cyber event? Because from a legal and policy perspective, there has to be a declared event for certain things to trigger certain support from the federal government and, and for states to get involved and if there's no incident declared, then nothing is going to happen until said incident is declared and support is requested. And that's what we mm. were really looking at. Where are those thresholds? And
1: what did you learn? I mean, what what, what can cause a, a delay between something happening, the suspicion that it may be one thing, and a, an official declaration?
0: So a lot of the delay is we're still in a mind state where we don't expect the cyber attack. So for example, when we had the traffic lights that were acting funny, the first thing people want to look to is mechanical failure because, you know, at this point that is a far more likely scenario than someone, you know, hacking from another nation state. And so we left everything nebulous to see where the communication was and, and, The communication initially goes from, you know, the city to their DPW equivalent, not all of them are named DPW, but Department of Public Works equivalent, who then sends somebody out. And so you get the delay where they're going out and checking the physical equipment um, or replacing the physical equipment. And then if there's still a problem, then they may go to the next level and start to look at, well, is it possibly cyber so you've got a, a pretty long time delay between a cyber interference starting and it actually being recognized as cyber if you keep it low-level, non-catastrophic.
1: Can, can you give us a, an idea of who were the various uh, groups sitting around the table here? Who was taking part?
0: Oh, so we had participation across industry um, We had the local governments from the cities of Charleston and Savannah and town of Mount Pleasant. Uh, We had the local energy companies, uh, Dominion Energy, Georgia Power. Um, We also had federal participation as well. Uh, We brought in during the law and policy tabletop exercise, we had representatives from U.S. Cyber Command, uh, U.S. Army North. Um, We also had the Office of the Secretary of Defense for Cyber Policy represented. Um, And so it's this whole of community approach where we kind of bring everybody together. Uh, We even had the um, Charleston City School District, the Savannah School District brought in because a lot of times people don't really think about the impact of public schools and children But in our scenario, when there were events that directly affected the public schools, you started to lose personnel to work on your mission because they had to go pick their children up or they were worried about their children. And so we really tried to take a a broad, holistic look at everything that could possibly go wrong and cause a delay.
1: Did you have many sort of aha moments a- along the way? I mean, were there were there any things that stood out to you where, you know, people were looking around the room, looking at each other across the table and saying, hmm, that's interesting.
0: So one of the big aha moments, and I kind of just gave it away with my answer before um, during the law and policy tabletop exercise, we we kind of stepped through some scenario pieces there um, and we brought up the potential of an alert going out about a shooting at a school and the, the horror, the tension in the room was absolutely palpable. Um, Mm -hmm you know and and when you think about it a lot of the people that are working in these offices have school age children and even though they knew it wasn't real it was you know a, a room full of people to- discussing a scenario you could feel the tension and the stress coming off of all the parents in the room and you could tell that that would be an immediate reaction it doesn't matter what else is going on that is going to be handled before anybody's ready to continue work.
1: Yeah, that's fascinating, isn't it? I mean, it's. I guess you can't really underestimate the the human side of all of this, particularly as, as you mentioned at the outset. You know, when we're dealing with things like natural disasters, and then having cyber put on top of that, um, people's emotional state is is really an important part of all this.
0: Exactly. Um, I know in some of the workshop discussions we had uh, when we were talking about earthquakes and flooding, depending on where we were, people will take care of their families before they can focus on the mission. And so a lot of incident response planning depends on a best case scenario where you have 100 percent of your workers and they're completely focused on the mission. When the reality is, if you're having these other issues, whether it's, you know, natural disaster or a terrorist attack or any other type of physical event, people are going to definitely put a lot of focus on making sure their families are safe before they focus on the actual job.
1: What were some of the main take homes here at the end of the day? What, what did everyone learn?
0: So at the end of the day, I, I will say one thing that I, I've got to put in there that that kind of trumps all of the actual uh, lessons from JV3 itself is that mm. we managed to conduct this fully distributed virtually online. And and that's a whole new thing in tabletop exercises ordinarily mm. and up until Uh, The end of February, we were bringing everybody together in a room where they could interact, talk face to face, build this trust. And then with COVID travel restrictions, we had to to lift and shift and move the entire thing online. And and now I absolutely prefer the online methodology because realistically, that's what's going to happen if there is an event You're still going to be in your office, especially as long as we saw it take for people to recognize that it may be a cyber incident, even though they were participating in a cyber exercise. So I think us moving this online and doing it 100 percent virtual far better mimics real life than actually bringing everybody in a room together where you kind of have a shortcut. You don't have to pick up the phone and call someone or email someone. You can just talk across the table. Um, right. And 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 also in addition to that what we've learned is we need more of these. And and that's not me trying to toot our horn or anything like that. The reality is our structure and our framework has basically brought as many questions as it's answered. And so with us doing one every couple of years, we've found that that is not going to get to the heart of the problem. In the same way that uh, having cities able to do their own would, um, where they can do them more frequently, and they don't have to go through the process we have to go through of coming into a new area, trying to understand the local landscape, finding the right partners, uh, establishing trust between all the parties, and what we're hoping to do, and and what we've been working on is making it where these cities and even possibly, you know, regions and state level can conduct their own exercise exercises and start to evaluate their progress on top of where they are now, but be able to continue to do them and evaluate progress from there.
1: Yeah, I mean, it really strikes me that that there, there's an advantage to the cities of having uh, you all from the Army Cyber Institute kind of take the lead on this because you're not coming into an area with, with a set of biases, you know, that you, you, you don't necessarily know, you know, all the ways that this particular locality does things. And so um, you're, you're not liable to have that sort of, um, you know, that old uh, chestnut about, well, that's the way we've always done things. You know, you're able to bring fresh eyes to the situation
0: right but now we're trying to use our framework to bring those fresh eyes without us having to go there ourselves um and mm. it's just for for you know economy of scale right i have a small right. team um we have 3 to 5 people in any given time and so trying to go out to a lot of different locations isn't going to get us where we need to be quickly And so that's why we've developed a a suite of tools that allow cities to go in and without necessarily seeing the scenario up front, they can share what sectors and subsectors they want to have participate, um, how long they want the exercise to be, whether it's a half day or a three-day exercise. And they can input a certain level of information about what they're looking to do And then what our tools do is it basically fills in the Mad Lib forum and hands them back an exercise guide and a player handbook. And it also gives them a data collector guide, like what information do they need to know? What questions do they need to ask? And then at the same time as they get their documentation to run their exercise, It's also sent over to the Norwich University Applied Research Institute's Decide platform, and they can actually play the exercise online in the Decide platform. And so what Mm -hmm. we've done is we've kept it low cost and low impact for the cities, but we've also managed to spread what we can do with just a handful of people.
1: And what's the response been so far with the, the cities that you've partnered with? How, how are they feeling about having gone through this exercise together?
0: So every city we've partnered with has loved it. They've um, leveraged it. At least so far, um, New York City and Houston have both leveraged the results of the exercise to get grant money to improve their cybersecurity. Charleston mm-hmm. and Savannah are working on that, but they're you know still very early in the process. And they've all requested to do it again. Um, I actually just spoke with someone a a few days ago about the potential for Houston doing it again. And so what we're offering is for Houston to be able to use these tools and develop their own exercise using our framework. And, And so that's what we're hoping to do because we would love to have That repeat exercise feedback as opposed to, okay, we've done this one area and we're never gonna see you again. You know, we would love to be able to follow up and have people continually do these so they can see where they've improved, what areas they still have for improvement.
1: Our thanks to Lieutenant Colonel Erica Mitchell from the Army Cyber Institute for joining us. If you'd like to learn more about their Jack Voltaic project, we'll have a link in the show notes. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR.